Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we discussed last week how Peter was preaching a sermon that would get him arrested. He called the, his audience worse than a politician, their least favorite politician, Pontius Pilate. He attacked them for how they treated Jesus and then said, Jesus is your Messiah. In other words, you need a Messiah. You're not good enough as you are. You must be saved. So Peter says that. The cops show up at, right at the beginning of chapter 4 and haul him off to jail. And then we also have the record of the hearing that took place the next morning. Acts chapter 4. Now as they spoke to the people, Peter and John spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go and finding no way of punishing them, because of all the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being part of the new temple founded on Christ, the true chief cornerstone. Lord, we ask that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures, that you would help us to follow the leadership of the apostles, 
that you would help us to rejoice as stones in the new temple. And Father, we pray too for the old temple, as it were, for the Jewish people. We ask that they, the veil would be taken off their minds and that they would understand the reality that Jesus is their Messiah. We ask your blessing on us as we hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Peter insisted that Jesus is for Jews first. He used that word first in verse 26 of chapter 3. To you first, God sent his servant Jesus. He gets arrested. He goes to jail in this chapter. And then, as I said, he has the hearing. What's the point of the chapter? Why does Luke tell us this? Well, he's showing the role of the temple. The old temple is becoming obsolete. And those who run the old temple know that and they fight back. They don't want their institution to be dissolved and destroyed. They are relentlessly opposed to the building of the new temple. And therefore, they imprison the new temple, question the new temple, try to hush up Peter and John as leaders of the new temple. That's not very successful, as we'll see in the weeks to come. The old temple imprisons the new, but the old temple fails to stop the new because the new temple isn't a physical building. It's the renewed people of God, founded on Jesus Christ, led by the apostles. We begin with the night in jail as the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees show up to arrest Peter and John. Now obviously, they've touched a nerve when you look at the people who show up to perform this arrest. By our contemporary standards, of course, the temple was a fairly small institution. I would be surprised if the temple had as many people on staff, or covered as many acres as the Camplex does. And yet, that said, even a relatively small institution, such as this temple, has some built-in self-protective mechanisms. One of them, of course, being a police force. This temple hosted major events all the time, and they had a chief of police who ran a police force there at the temple. And he is the one identified here in the New King James as the captain of the temple. He's the number two man. The boss of the temple is the high priest, chief executive officer of the temple complex. Working directly for him is this chief of police. So Peter and John are speaking, and who shows up to arrest them? Not the officer on duty with a few others, but the police chief himself comes down to arrest them. Now, why? Well, obviously because Peter's sermon has touched a nerve. Something about what Peter is saying clues the leadership in that this is not some crank. There's something more going on. Our institution is under threat. If we let this kind of teaching continue, well, 
our institution will vanish, right? Some protest movements are taken seriously and correspondingly repressed, and others are not. In my mind, and this is not to comment on the substantive issues of either one, we can look at the Hong Kong protests of 2019 and the Chinese Communist Party's response to those where they have effectively made any kind of protest like that illegal, imprisoned everyone they can catch who participated, and generally made everyone terrified of going back out on the streets of Hong Kong. Why did they do that? Well, again, it touched a nerve. They recognized that if they granted the demands of the protesters, they would cease to exist. And one can compare that to the response to the Black Lives Matter protests in our own country in the summer of 2020 which were encouraged, co-opted, praised by politicians. Right? They didn't touch the same kind of nerve. The powers that be didn't say, we have to squelch this or it will destroy us. The powers that be said, this kind of protest fits perfectly with the rule that we have. Not to comment on the issues, just to say which response is closer to the one that Peter and John engendered. Well, obviously, it's a little more like the Chinese crackdown, that important people, people with some clout, people with some status, show up to arrest these two apostles. Peter didn't directly say, let's abolish animal sacrifices, burn down the temple, and create a whole new way of worshiping Jehovah. He didn't say that. But he didn't have to. It was obvious that that was the drift of his sermon that we looked at over the last two weeks. The leadership got it. Something about the resurrection clued them in. They take Peter and John and put them in the cooler for the night. And Luke can't resist juxtaposing the imprisoned apostles with the non-imprisoned word. The word is at large. The word continues to grow. The number of believers grows to be 5,000 men. They had 3,000 converts at Pentecost. That number increases now to 5,000 families. Pretty impressive size. Already, in just a couple of weeks after Pentecost. Well, on the next day, now that's the difference, of course, between ancient legal systems and our own. In antiquity, they weren't so rich that they could just keep people locked up indefinitely and say, oh, well, you'll have your hearing in six months. They had the hearing the next day. And their rulers, elders and scribes, notice that Luke says their rulers, not the rulers of the temple, not the Jewish rulers, but their rulers, right? distancing himself from them. They're not us, they're, they're them. It's already signaling some kind of split or divergence between the temple authorities on the one side and the apostles on the other. But their rulers show up, and he names some of the big ones. Annas, the high priest. The boss of the whole temple is here. So is Caiaphas, his predecessor as high priest. So are John and Alexander, 
And as many as were of the family of the high priest, right? The high priest brings his brothers and his brothers-in-law and anybody who's part of his family with some spiritual clout on the Jerusalem scene. Now again, Luke is emphasizing the status of the people who show up. Now we can just ask, uh, some of you have had your day in court rather frequently, how often does our own elected Campbell County prosecutor show up for hearings? How frequently are we going to see our mayor there in the courtroom to ask questions of the prisoner? Right? Getting into ecclesiastical cases. How often might we see our own Roman Catholic Bishop of Cheyenne as our equivalent of the high priest showing up in an ecclesiastical courtroom or a civil courtroom? These people do not come down to hearings for just anyone who's arrested on charge of breaching the peace in the temple. No, they know this is big. How do they know? My gut tells me that it's their guilty conscience. But they knew the whole time that Jesus was the real Messiah. And that this is the Jesus movement continuing. And that's why they all show up. But regardless, that's who's there. Peter and John are looking at the crowd and they're like, whoa. This is who's here. Well, the most important people in Jerusalem are at this hearing. So Peter, naturally, goes for it. They ask, the question that the hearing has assembled to decide is, who healed the lame man? What power did you call on to do this? Now it's obvious, as we saw in Luke's presentation, that the power of the old temple was not sufficient to heal this fellow. He had sat outside the beautiful gate of the temple for decades and the temple had never done anything for him. Therefore, the temple leadership assembles and says, who did do something for him? We're clearly dealing with a power inside our temple that is more powerful than our temple. And we're not okay with this. Peter is not a hostile witness. He answers the question, and he doesn't just answer with a word or two. He gives a full statement about Jesus. Name, title, hometown, method of death, and resurrection at the hands of God. Five salient factors in the healing of the lame man. Why does he volunteer so much? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Peter's not a hostile witness. He doesn't want to make it tough for the prosecution to figure out what happened. He's eager for everyone to know what happened. He can't wait to testify to the glory and power of of Christ. Now he can't resist pointing out 
Why is it wrong to heal a lame man? Why am I having a hearing in front of the most important people in Jerusalem because I did an act of charity and kindness? But he knows that's not the issue, so he just moves on. They don't have a problem with him doing acts of kindness around town. He knows that the issue is who violated our temple boundaries? Who brought a power greater than our temple into this temple? And Peter is happy to tell them. It was Jesus. Remember the one you killed about seven weeks ago? That one? He just healed this fellow. And of course the man is there. What is Peter doing? He's inviting them to believe. He doesn't start with, I'm a Christian and you're not. No, his message is, I'm a Christian and you can be one too. Come join me. Believe in Jesus who healed the lame man. You see him, he's right here, he's healed. Believe. But, you know, Peter is able to read their faces and he sees that they're not interested in believing and so he goes on to verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected and he adds a word, by you builders. In case they don't understand that he's identifying them with the builders of Psalm 118, he explicitly says it to their face. You consider yourselves to be the builders of the temple. You think that that's your job from God, and so it was. These people are officially in charge of the temple through all the legal means. In the Jewish church, they are the ones set apart to build the temple of God and to keep it running. So you're the temple builders and you've committed just now the ultimate mistake. You rejected the cornerstone. Just like Psalm 118 says. Without Jesus, there is no dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In order to join Peter as a Christian, the temple leadership would have to admit that what their temple is founded on is insufficient. And that Jesus, the one they killed, is the true cornerstone of the new temple. Peter openly declares this to them and adds the exclusive nature of salvation. Don't look for a different cornerstone. Don't think that you can build or find salvation somewhere else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Period. Right? An exclusive statement. And we must be saved. Christian message is that salvation is not optional, not an add-on for an even better life, but that rather human life without salvation is not even life anymore. Salvation is necessary for human life as such, Peter declares. And you guys are in the way of that. You temple builders have rejected the cornerstone of the new temple. So what's the official response? Well, the first part of the official response is just shock. 
It's one thing to know that hedge preachers somewhere, hick preachers are saying crazy things. It's another thing to be told it to your face. Probably the high priest didn't have people confronting him very often and saying, you are failing to build the temple. In fact, your temple is obsolete and it's going to be destroyed. I'm guessing he didn't get that very frequently. But he just got it here. The whole council at this point is hyperventilating a little bit. How can they be so bold? These are ignorant, uneducated, untrained men. They didn't come through our schools. They don't have their rabbinical certificate of ordination. They don't have a seminary degree. They don't have any of the credentials that we have. Right? Like the Pharisees told Jesus, you were altogether born in sin, and do you teach us? It's also imperative that we hear Peter's speech with the most ignorant, backwoods accent that we can think of. Peter did not sound like the Jerusalem elite, right? He did not have that BBC announcer voice. Peter sounded more like somebody from the backwoods of North Carolina or maybe somebody from the hollers of West Virginia, right? somebody where you would just hear him and say, I don't think you're going to go far in life with that accent. And so the Jerusalem elite are shocked to hear these words coming out of his mouth. The apostles didn't have seminary training, but they had been with Jesus. Luke's trenchant observation here. That even the blind Pharisees, even the high priest, can realize that sounds like Jesus. That's the way he talked. That's the way he reasoned. That's the way he read scripture. That's the way he argued That's the way he put us to shame so that we couldn't say anything more to him. These apostles sound just like him. Would anyone interviewing you know that you had been with Jesus? Do you talk in such a way that someone talking to you says, Wow, you've been with Jesus. Is it obvious in how you think? In how you handle Scripture? Are your opinions and methods so Christ-like that anyone who sees them will say, you've been with Jesus? Luke is holding this up as an example for us. The apostles have been with Jesus. We're called to be with Jesus too. How do we get there? Well, we spend time with Jesus in public worship private worship, family worship. Become like Him by being with Him. That's how you learn to imitate Him. That's how you learn to look like Him. That's how Peter and John were like Him. They had spent three years with Him. And that's how we'll become like Him too, if we spend time with Christ. If we don't spend time with Christ, 
we will continue to look like our fallen selves or like whatever it is that we do spend time with. So, seeing the man who had been healed, the high priest and his crew are unable to say, no, you didn't heal him. No, this wasn't the power of Jesus. Right? That was a bridge too far even for them. That flew in the face of the obvious so ridiculously that they gave up. We can't deny the miracle. And that's even what they say, right? They expel the apostles so that they can talk about them privately with them not in the room and say, what will we do? A notable sign has been done and everyone in Jerusalem knows it so we can't deny it. Right? That was plan A. Deny it. Nobody's been healed. Right? Move along, folks. Nothing to see here. The guy who used to sit and beg alms at the beautiful gate, well... He didn't come today. But plan A won't work, so they have to move to plan B, which is, let's hush it up. We can't deny it, so let's try to suck away all the publicity so nobody even thinks about it and it just falls away into the trash can of regret or forgetfulness. Well, that's plan B. Maybe the threat will go away. Maybe Psalm 118 doesn't really apply to this situation. Maybe Jesus isn't the true cornerstone of the new temple. Let me just observe that when it comes to our sin, any plan of the form, I'll hush it up, is bound to fail. That was their plan. We'll hush it up. Well, thanks to Luke and his skill with a pen, this is one of the best-known incidents from the entire history of the temple in Jerusalem. They were going to hush it up. And yet, if there's one thing we know about the temple in the first century, it's this, how the lame man was healed and violated the temple boundaries. Hushing it up doesn't work. If you're planning on getting away with a particular sin, because I'll hush it up. If you're planning on suppressing a particular truth, because I'll hush it up. Guess what? It's going to fail. You won't be able to hush it up. The truth will escape no matter how deep and dark you lock it up. And that's what the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and the rest of their cronies quickly found out. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name healed the man, fine. You guys spent a night in jail, fine. Just please, right? do me a favor and don't say any more about him. Now, we're going to see this over and over in Acts. The main point where persecution comes is almost never practicing your religion in terms of engaging in corporate worship and doing the rites and ceremonies that your religion commands. Pressure point always comes with proselytizing. Trying to tell other people that they need to change, that they need to come be Christians, 
That's where the persecution comes from. That's why it's a lot easier not to witness. Because if we never suggest to anybody that they might be wrong and need to come follow Jesus, then they won't have any problem with us following him. The temple authorities have no problem with Peter and John choosing to worship Jesus however they want in some little room somewhere in Jerusalem. What they don't like is the destruction of their institution, the violation of their boundaries, the proclamation in the name of Jesus to others who don't yet believe in him. That's what sets them off. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Should I listen to you over God? You tell me. Right? No matter how degraded someone's moral sense is, they will be able to say, yes, the word of God is more important than my own desires. The Sanhedrin couldn't bring themselves to say that in so many words. Peter and John just moved on and said, whatever your decision is, we're not going to listen to you more than God. We can't but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We're witnesses and we are going to testify. You've been warned. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Because all the people glorified God for what had been done. Israel has left their official leaders, the, the high priest and his gang, and they're now following the apostles. Luke is showing us the transition from old temple to new temple, the transition from old leadership high priest, which was a biblical office, high priest to apostles. And the people of Israel overwhelmingly are siding with the apostles at this point. Christ's sheep hear his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They follow the one who speaks with the voice of Christ. Those who know Jesus follow his under-shepherds, not the ones Rome set up to run the temple system. Why? Well, Luke says it comes back to the power of undeniable evidence. This man was over 40. He had been there a really long time. His healing made a big impression on Jerusalem. The whole town was aware of it. He used to be there. He was a fixture there. And now he's gone. So the high priests have no chance of saying, it didn't happen. No, everyone knows it happened. Too late to say, it didn't happen. So how does this relate to Luke's larger purpose? Remember, his purpose is to show the certainty of the kingdom. To show that Jesus really is reigning. That his kingdom really is advancing. So, the question of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time, well, that's something that the futurologists can speculate on. But the question of whether this particular lame man is now able to walk, well, that we can all see the answer to. That one's obvious. Right, it's evidence in history that Jesus reigns, 
The reign of Christ has healed this man, so follow Christ. And so it is for us today. Our neighbors can say, well, I don't know whether Jesus Christ is really coming back. That's a matter for futurologists to speculate on. But where they can't pull that move is in evaluating whether our lives are really full of love, joy, and peace. Right? They can't say, well, I don't know whether your life is full of love, joy, and peace. That remains to be seen. Well, either it is or it isn't. And they'll be able to know. They'll be able to look at us and see whether we've been with Jesus or not. And if the world looks at the church today and says, well, they all look just like us, except they spend two hours on Sunday morning in a building with each other instead of in a coffee shop with each other. But otherwise, their life is exactly like mine, so why would I want to adopt their life? The healing of the lame man provides evidence, incontrovertible evidence, that Jesus reigns. And the joy-filled, peaceful Christian life provides incontrovertible evidence that Jesus reigns. I just read this week, one of the newest topics of academic study is family alienation. In the last 10 years or so, professors have started to look at this, and the most recent calculation they've been able to come up with is that 27% of American adults are alienated, estranged from a member of their immediate family, a parent or a sibling or a child. Right, So we're edging towards a society where one-third of our neighbors can't get along with their son, their daughter, their mom, their dad, their brother, their sister. Do we not have an unparalleled opportunity to say, Here's a life of love, joy, and peace. Here's a life of reconciliation. Here's a family where the parents and the children love each other. So the lame man was healed and no one could deny it. Because Jesus reigns and he's making us part of the new temple under the leadership of the apostles. And our call then is to live as those living stones, a fit dwelling place for God by the Spirit, called to be like Jesus, so that anyone who talks to us, anyone who looks at us, can say, they've been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the old temple did not prevail, that you overruled those temple builders, and that you made your son the chief cornerstone. We thank you that we now are being built on him into a living temple, a temple of living stones to offer acceptable sacrifices to you through your son. Lord, we ask that you would help us to offer those. The sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge your name, the sacrifice of obedience, Father, help us to live in such a way that we show the world that Jesus really does reign, that he really is returning, that his kingdom truly cannot fail, that he rules earth and heaven 
And we see that because he rules in this church. He rules in this home. Lord, help us. Transform us to look like your son so that everyone who talks to us will say, they've been with Jesus. And forgive us, Lord, for giving your son a bad name, for not looking like him. For letting the world think that the church is just like the world, only more so. Even more hypocritical, even more judgmental, even more self-righteous. Father, may that not be the case. Give us love, joy, and peace. Love for one another. We pray that there would be no schism, no alienation within the ranks of the body of Jesus. We ask these things in His name. Amen.